Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 150, The Serbo-Bulgarian War, part 1. Now, there's no new patrons, as I just recorded a few days ago, uh, but if you want to consider even just $1 an episode helps a lot, and let's get into it. Last time, we covered less than two months because a lot was happening. Well, spoiler alert, we're covering five days in this episode, so things are getting pretty packed. Now, in the last episode, after some initial hesitation, Petko Karavelov and Prince Alexander both decided to fully back unification with Eastern Rumelia. The Eastern Rumelian government initially tried to push back, but its military ensured that wouldn't happen. So, unification happened quite quickly and without any, or, okay, I didn't read any reports, at least any that I'm aware of, bloodshed. But, the Eastern and Eastern Rumelian and Bulgarian militaries, they were both mobilized very quickly and sent towards the Ottoman border, anticipating a potential Ottoman invasion in response to unification. Now, in general, the great power response was pretty mixed. Russia's was initially chaotic as its diplomats had no guidance and they had totally different responses and interpretations of how they should respond. However, once the Tsar found out, he very, in no, let's say, in no uncertain terms, condemned unification and immediately withdrew all Russian officers from the country. However, this backfired as Prince Alexander was now in complete control of the army and looked like a conquering hero while the Russian Tsar looked like he had abandoned Bulgaria when it needed him most. A popular saying on the streets of Sofia was that Russia loved Bulgaria, but not the Bulgarians. I think there was some version of that during the communist era here as well. Now, in general, most of the great powers wanted things to return to the status quo. Although the British supported some kind of union, just not full annexation of Eastern Rumelia. But the state which was the most angry at this whole situation was undoubtedly Serbia. They loudly demanded territorial compensation and began to mobilize their army. Despite attempts to send diplomats and calm the situation on the part of Bulgaria, Serbia moved headlong towards war as the great powers gathered in Constantinople to formally discuss how to respond. Before those diplomats could even come to some kind of agreement, Serbia declared war on November the 2nd, citing Bulgaria's violation of the Treaty of Berlin as the reason. Now, inter interestingly enough, the news shocked many people in Serbia itself the Serbian army had largely assumed that their mobilization was to prepare for an attack on the Ottoman Empire to regain Macedonia. Misha Glenny writes how, quote, Belgrade's Café Society was amazed. Why Bulgaria? The Bulgarians were Slav brothers who had fought closely with the Serbs to cast off the Turkish yoke. Surely the unification of Bulgaria was to be welcomed as a further blow against the Sultan's unsteady hold on Europe. This was not idle chat. Despite their defeat in the Timok Rebellion two years before, the Radical Party was still the most influential political force in the countryside, from which the bulk of conscripts were drawn. In addition, many radical leaders, including Nikola Pasic, were living in Bulgaria as political refugees. 
Neither the peasants nor much of the urban population of Serbia could understand a war with Bulgaria. But the Serbian peasants reluctantly mustered in villages and towns in order to accompany Milan, their master, and a Serb, on what the king unwisely called his stroll to Sofia. End quote. So, the Serbian army and populace were not exactly enthusiastic about this war. In fact, you could say just confused, befuddled, perplexed. They didn't understand why this was happening. But just what was King Milan trying to achieve here? His plan was simply to overwhelm the Bulgarians with numbers and quickly take Vidin and Sofia, ideally on his name day, November the 9th, a week after the war declaration. Then he could dictate terms, and the terms he planned to dictate were the following. 1. The annexation of all Bulgarian territory west of the Iskar River. Now, to give you an idea, this would include roughly a quarter of Bulgaria's territory at the time, including Eastern Romania, including Vidin, Sofia, and Vratza, so a lot of Bulgaria's larger cities. Serbia would also occupy the rest of Bulgaria. The Bulgarian capital would be moved to Tornovo. Bulgaria would pay huge war reparations. And King Milan would lead a military parade in Bulgaria to commemorate his triumph. Now, these were unquestionably harsh terms. A Serbian victory would mean Bulgaria would be kind of relegated to a tiny country encompassing only a strip of land between the Danube and the Balkan Mountains. Its economy would no, no doubt be ruined by having to pay such major war reparations. And, well, it's hard to imagine San Stefano Bulgaria being any, anything other than a total fantasy at that point. Serbia, with Austrian backing, would become the main military force in the Balkans and would be well positioned to annex Macedonia. However, if everything went according to plan, this invasion would trigger a Russian declaration of war against Serbia. Now, this would then trigger a secret treaty with Austria-Hungary bringing them into the war. Now, King Milan wasn't embarking on this war knowing it might trigger a massive European conflict. He was actually betting on it. He kind of wanted that chaos. He thought he could take advantage of it. But, of course, little did he know that there was no chance Russia was going to war for Bulgaria in this instance. And quite the opposite, really. But it still does give us an insight into his mindset at the moment, that he was willing to trigger a huge European conflict to get what he wanted. He was playing for table stakes here. But to accomplish all of this, Milan needed to accomplish his military goals. And to give you an idea of how the Bulgarian and Serbian military stacked up at this moment, I'm going to quote Ivan Ilchev at length here. He wrote, quote, On the eve of the battle... Bulgaria had 100 infantry regiments, 9 cavalry squadrons, and 12 artillery batteries, as well as 43,000 trained soldiers. After the mobilization, their ranks increased to 66,000. There was a shortage of petty and full-fledged officers. The militia of Eastern Romania numbered some 20 infantry regiments and 42,000 were mobilized. Supplies were typical of any poor state. Soldiers and officers fought in November clad in summer uniforms, and there was a shortage of coats. Instead of boots, many were shod in traditional local pigskin footwear. Nor were there sufficient implements for making trenches, and the soldiers were forced to pick at the frozen ground with their knives. Armaments at first consisted of extremely old-fashioned rifles, later to be replaced by more modern Berdana carbines. Artillery consisted of 200 guns, but munitions were only enough for a short conflict. Army provisions depended on the enthusiasm of the population, which collected money, food, and provender. 
Serbia, in turn, had the wars of 1876 and 1877 to 1878 behind her, as well as experienced commanders. General mobilization could swell troop numbers up to 215,000. However, although they were armed with Mausers produced in Serbia itself, their guns were outdated and there was also a shortage of munitions. End quote. So, it gives you that in terms of military experience, in terms of weaponry, in terms of numbers, Serbia seems to have all the advantages. But at the moment the war began, Serbia fielded about 70,000 men, as Milan had only raised the first army thinking that was all he would need, compared to about fifteen to 16,000 Bulgarians that were facing them along that front. Although that's only about half the Bulgarian army, the other half again was rushing towards the Ottoman border. Now, during the fighting, overall, Serbian forces would swell up to 120,000, while Bulgaria's would grow to just over 100,000. So that initial huge Serbian advantage in numbers would diminish over the conflict. Now, one critical distinction was that while they were now gone, the Russian officers had done an excellent job of training the professional corps of the Bulgarian army. As I mentioned last time, the highest ranking officer left in Bulgaria was captain, leading to one nickname for this war, being the War of the Captains. On the Serbian side, however, they had several military commanders with all that experience I just mentioned, but King Milan did not appoint any of them to lead the army. He wanted to keep them out of the conflict so he could lead the army personally and take all the glory for himself. Although most were upset at Serbia's declaration of war, no foreign powers were prepared to intervene, so for now the war is just between the two Balkan states fighting for domination of the region. Unsurprisingly, the most, well, most people predicted a Serbian victory, but many Russian officers who had just returned from Bulgaria stated that they felt Serbia was in for a rude awakening. So, now that the stage is set, let's dive into the events. Duncan Perry describes the moment word came to senior Bulgarian leadership, amusingly detailed, how amusingly kind of detailing how they had been living in a konak, a kind of Ottoman administrative building in Plovdiv, throughout October to kind of handle the grunt work and the paperwork of the unification. So, early on the morning of November the 2nd, Prince Alexander's brother was awake playing cards with Stefan Stambolov and Petko Karavelov when the telegraph machine suddenly leapt to life, announcing that Serbia had just declared war. Prince Alexander was awakened and immediately set off for the front via Sofia with Karavelov in tow. Stambolov was staying behind to help facilitate the movement of troops from the Ottoman border to the border with Serbia. Now, this was risky because, well, the Bulgarian leadership had to assume the Ottomans wouldn't attack, but frankly, it was a risk they had to take. If the Ottomans attacked Bulgaria, well, there wasn't much anybody could do to save the country. So the best option was to rush everything they had to fight the Serbs and hope for the best against the Ottomans. When the prince and Karavelov arrived in Sofia, they learned that the border town of Tsaribrod had already fallen and that Bulgarian forces were in retreat. The prince issued a statement to be spread throughout the country calling for, quote, every Bulgarian capable of carrying a weapon to come under the flags to fight for his homeland and freedom, to protect our land from the invasion of invaders, end quote. Bulgarians were indeed on their way, but it wasn't just ethnic Bulgarians. Prince Alexander had long worked to foster good relations with the country's Muslim minority, and this now paid off as 6,000 volunteers joined in the fight. Now, 
I mentioned Bulgarian soldiers are now rushing to the opposite end of the country. Well, to give you an idea what that looked like, one particular infantry regiment marched 60 miles. That's just under 100 kilometers in 32 hours. I'll quote Misha Glennie again on how this enormous transfer went. He wrote, quote, Nothing revealed the depth of Bulgarian popular resolve more than the speed and determination with which the troops were diverted from the Turkish frontier to Slivnica. Using five defective trains whose engines were held together by old stovepipes, the Bulgarian command transported over 50,000 troops, 240 kilometers in six days, to a position within 130 kilometers of the Serbian forces. In appalling weather conditions, the infantry and artillery covered the last stretch on foot. End quote. So those 50,000 soldiers had to travel mostly by foot or on horseback if they were lucky. Many arrived in Sofia barefoot and yet eager to fight. There were few of any officers to lead them and they had to feed themselves via donations by the locals of the towns they passed through. However, as they traveled, that's what they got, and soldiers were greeted by jubilant crowds wishing them success. However, while the prince and Karavelov rallied the country to resist the Serbs, Tsankov and Russian officials in their consulate anticipated a Bulgarian defeat and wanted to use it to return to power. So, while the Serbs advanced, they put together a prospective new government. Okay, now I'm going to dive into a more detailed description of the war itself, and this conflict takes place on a fairly small front, much smaller than previous conflicts we've talked about, and so the descriptions will have to be a bit more detailed, and for that reason, I highly, highly recommend you check out the maps on the blog post connected with this episode so you can follow what's happening. Otherwise, it's going to be pretty difficult unless you're intimately familiar with Western Bulgarian geography. So let's get into it. Misha Glenny describes these early days from the Serbian perspective, writing, quote, As the main Serbian army crossed the border, it was accompanied by the crowing of a triumphal press. Exhortations were made to the Hajduk spirit of the Serbs, while the Bulgarians were dismissed as docile market gardeners. But the Serbs' progress towards Slivnica, the main defensive bastion between the border and Sofia, was inexplicably slow. The bulk of Bulgarian troops were still in eastern Rumelia, but the first-line defenses put up a tenacious struggle. They were outnumbered and outgummed by the oncoming Serbs. But the Bulgarian command, stiffened by the resolve of dozens of Russian officers who had defied their emperor's orders and remained with the Bulgarian army, exploited every tactical error made by the inexperienced Serbian generals. End quote. So, as I mentioned, by the time Karovelov and the prince arrived in Sofia, Tsaribrod, just over the border with Serbia, had already fallen. There, the local Bulgarian defenders had been outnumbered 7-1. to one. Thus, after some pretty brief fighting, the Bulgarians had to withdraw on the road leading to Sofia and put up another position at the next town of Dragoman. Those soldiers knew that their mission was to make a fighting retreat to buy time for their countrymen to come and reinforce them. Now, while the Bulgarians were putting up a good fight and gradually retreating, in the center, the Serbs were making a major push to the south. Therefore, this force aimed to capture the town of Trun and Breznik before swinging up into the Sofia plain to meet up with the Serbian center force. Now, the southern force first met resistance on the second day of the war. There was intense fighting in the morning, and by the afternoon, the Bulgarians retreated to a mountain pass. 
From this position, they launched a counterattack, which surprised the Serbs and held them off for the rest of the day, i.e. November 3rd. The next day, the Bulgarians mounted another fighting retreat towards Breznik. That same day, however, the Serbs managed to capture Trun and head that way. The Serbs also attacked Dragoman, but were repulsed. During these two days, troops were arriving from the east and defensive positions were being prepared at Slivnica, including Prince Alexander himself, who arrived the evening of the 4th to oversee things. Serbian troops arrived there the next that day as well, pausing to rest after the fierce fighting it had taken for them to get through the Dragoman Pass and reach Slivnica. Now, to the north, fighting began on November the 3rd when the Serbs quickly crossed the border and captured the town of Kula on their way to their main target there of Vidin. In response, the Bulgarian commander of the northern detachment, Atanas Uzonov, put together a flying squadron of 900 soldiers, 100 horsemen, and 6 cannons to quickly move in and counterattack. Another group of Serbs headed for the ancient fortress of Belogracic, which is an amazing sight to behold. I'll try to remember to attach a photo to the blog post, but if you ever visit Bulgaria, you gotta check it out. Anyways, so they were heading to Belogracic, which, which kind of controls the passage south from Vidin towards Sofia. Uzonov also sent volunteers to help there. By November the 4th, two days into the war, the Serbs had settled into the Ottoman-era fortifications around Kula to face the coming Bulgarian counterattack. This sees the Bulgarians take some of the fortifications and even cut off the lines of Serbian retreat. However, at this moment, the northern territory around Vidin is defended entirely by volunteers and reservists, who are outnumbered anyways. Their lack of discipline led to many being captured by Serbian counterattacks. After this Bulgarian loss at Kula, the remaining Bulgarian forces retreated to Vidin and Lom. A Bulgarian loss further north at Bregovo that same day meant that the Serbs now had two open roads leading straight to Vidin, and there the Bulgarians began to prepare for a siege. Now while all this is happening, Prince Alexander convened a council, which decided to focus the Bulgarian defenses of Sofia at the town of Slivnica. Now, Slivnica was just 22 kilometers from Sofia, but even more importantly, it was indeed the last defensive position between the Serbs and the Bulgarian capital. If it fell, so too would Sofia. If that happened, well, the war might well be lost already. But by the time the Serbs arrived on November the 4th, the Bulgarians had prepared some four kilometers of trenches with reinforced artillery positions ready to meet them. Now, a quick note here, none of my books go into a lot of detail about the Battle of Slidnica, and accounts I found online varied quite a bit, so the following is kind of my best to put together a cohesive narrative from what I could find. So, the Battle of Slidnica began around 10 a.m. on the 5th of November when Prince Alexander ordered the Bulgarian right to advance through rain and mist. This surprised the Serbs, but they soon rallied and pushed the Bulgarians back. Later in the day, the Serbian center advanced. However, their artillery did not have sufficient range to support this advance, and so they were pushed back after taking heavy losses. Thus, the first day of fighting ended with both armies in the same positions. Thus far, the Bulgarians had held. Yet, Prince Alexander remained deeply concerned and prepared a plan for a possible evacuation of Sofia should it prove necessary. He was right to be worried, 
as Breznik had fallen to Ser the Serbs that same day. Remember, that's the town to the south that controls a road that basically goes around Slivnica and heads north to Sofia. So that means this opened up the possibility that that southern Serbian force could just outflank and cut off the Bulgarians defending the road to Sofia at Slivnica. So even if they put up a tremendous defense and no one ever got through Slivnica, well, then it wouldn't matter anyways. Now back at Slivnica the next morning, November the 6th, saw a Serbian attack all along the front. Their assault on the weaker Bulgarian left almost succeeded until Bulgarian reinforcements arrived to prevent a collapse. The Serbs focused their attacks here throughout the day, taking more heavy losses. But while things were kind of stabilizing at Slivnica, the situation to the south was looking dire. There, a small Bulgarian force was rushing to prevent the Serbs advancing from Breznik. However, those troops were quickly surrounded on two sides and broke into chaos as they retreated towards Samokov, as the road to Sofia had already been cut off by Serbian cavalry. At least to the north, November 6 saw Bulgarians defending Belgradchik successfully and generally holding off a lot of Serbian attacks. But the south was where things were really worrying. The next day, November the 7th, the situation was perched just on a knife's edge. In the north, the Serbs, again, were being held back at Belgradchik, but they were advancing towards Vidin as that city prepared for siege. In the south, they are moving quickly up from Breznik to outflank the defenders at Slivnica, where the Bulgarians still held firm. Fortunately for the Bulgarians, though, a ferocious attack, including a bayonet charge, stopped the Serbs' southern advance towards Slivnica at the Battle of Girguliat. Back at Slivnica, fresh troops were pouring in on both sides, and the Serbs attacked to the south, trying to meet up with their southern force, but this failed. So, it seemed for now that Slivnica was safe from being outflanked. The Bulgarians took this opportunity to counterattack, pushing the Serbs back all along their lines. The Serbian force was only saved from total disaster by the onset of nightfall. So, with the coming of November the 8th, still less than a week into the war, an opening has occurred for a Bulgarian advance and counterattack. It's a day from King Milan's name day, and, well, things are not quite going to plan. Next time, we'll see what the Bulgarians manage to do with this opening that they have. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. Check out the brief kind of early on Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. You can also subscribe to our Facebook page to see uh, interesting things I like to post on occasion, ask any questions, meet other people. It's a nice little community. And I will catch you on the next one.